This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guide along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss the invisible sun itself. And then, with Embrace the Black Cube, we consider the sixth design diary on the role of secrets in invisible sun. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. We're back on the path of suns, sort of. Uh, we're talking about the sun number nine, the sun of magic, the Invisible Sun, which is also known as Solaire. So we're going to be talking about the ninth sun. We're talking about the Invisible Sun. This is the source of all magic. And that's it. All right. End of segment. Are we ready to talk about the next thing? We do have a little more information than yeah. that, but not a whole lot more. This this sun isn't actually on the Path of Suns, which is interesting. Uh, when when I was reading up on this and remembering what this is all about, I totally forgot that this isn't technically part of the Path of Suns. This is the sun where all magic flows out from, and magic flows from this one into all of the other suns and down onto their worlds that they shine upon their attendant worlds. And this was another little piece of information that I had totally forgotten about. Uh, but why don't we talk a little bit about the invisible sun before we get into some of the uh, other details that came up while I was reading about this again. Uh, so the path of suns actually pivots on the power of Solaire. So it sounds like, if there is a grand universe in this role-playing game, Solaire is at the very center of it, and everything else sort of, you know, hinges upon that and, you know, draws its power from it. It is the capital S source of all magic for this role-playing game. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, the capitalization there did make it seem very significant that this is the source uh, there's all sorts of sources of magic that, you know, I've run into in, you know, novels and other worlds, uh, that, you know, I've played in, in RPGs. So it's interesting that there is like a source of magic here and it's, you know, the invisible sun. Uh, another interesting thing about it is that it doesn't have a night side path. Uh, it doesn't have any duality to it. Like the other suns do. It does have two gates which uh, all of the other suns do. Uh, but the other suns have a night side gate and what's what's the regular path called? I think it's day side or, or yeah, I think it's day side and night side. Yeah, it might be day side. So I, I think I hear, uh, is it rain or is it hail hitting your window? That would be hail. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, if you hear breaking glass, then that's the half dollar sized hail. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be fun. But hopefully this time you're not going to get flooded out. 
Hopefully not. So yeah, there's there's no night side to this sun, and there's no there's no no duality to it like the other suns have. So this sun is set apart from everything else. It is perhaps the most important sun, uh, and it is also you know fairly different from the others. Uh, one other thing about this one is that it has no attendant world like the other suns do. So the light from the invisible sun isn't shining down upon anything directly. It's it's flowing through all of the other suns and shining down upon uh, the attendant worlds of each of those suns. So I thought that was kind of interesting because I was one of the things I've been trying to sort of figure out during all of our conversations and all the reading that I've been doing is what actually is the sun? Like if you are under the silver sun, is it the world that you're in or is it the sun above a world that is the silver sun? Like what's going on here? Can you travel to the invisible sun, for example? So here it sounds like when you travel between suns, you're going to be on, I don't know, I guess you're going to be on some sort of world. I don't think it would be accurate to say it's it's like a planet like Earth, because as we know, indigo is an infinite plane uh, above which sits the indigo sun, uh, which we can infer from this attendant world idea. Yeah, is this the first time we've run across that phrase, attendant world? It is the first time in the Kickstarter stuff that it does come up. Because I, I didn't remember that from before in our discussions, but that is an interesting notion that what we've been talking about mostly is actually the attendant worlds associated with each un, each sun, mm-hmm. and that now the invisible sun lacks an attendant world, which suggests visiting it is either not possible or at least a very different experience than visiting one of the other the attendant worlds of the other suns. Yeah, and I I would assume that you would be able to visit it. I. Uh, Simply because the Path of Suns has, it's been mentioned in a few of the posts that the Path of Suns is a map uh, of the suns in a physical sense, but also in an internal and metaphysical sense. That the map, the, the Path of Suns is the map of your soul, which I still don't understand. Well, there's, uh, that. that is a common metaphor in uh, alchemy and in uh, Middle Ages mysticism in general. The notion, uh, the phrase I think I've used before on the podcast of as above, so below, that what we see in the stars, for instance, reflects uh, essential aspects of the human body. And so we can understand the human body by understanding the stars and vice versa. Uh, In a maybe more trivial example, the t-shirts that they gave out uh, at the announcement of Invisible Sun uh, had an interesting characteristic along these lines. The the t-shirt design was dominated by the path of suns that we've mm-hmm. come to know. But there is actually a symbol for the Invisible Sun. It is somewhat subtle compared to the dominant design of the Invisible Sun. And it's designed to be placed directly over the heart. Yeah, that's interesting now that you mentioned that. Now, okay, so in alchemy, this idea is it's 
uh, as above, so below. So you ancient alchemists might have been looking up into the stars and mapping out the stars and the constellations and then equating that to the human body. Right. It wouldn't just be alchemists, but other uh, kind of mystical uh, or magical artists, uh, mm-hmm. including healers. And so there are uh, traditions of healing in the you know mid uh, middle ages uh, that would suggest for instance that different diseases may be cued to different uh, constellations and so the progression of moons uh, or our planets or other things uh, may trigger different reactions from human bodies mm-hmm. and that's an, that's a connection between the above and the below uh, but also that the logic of, of the movement of constellations and planetary bodies and the like uh, is reflective of similar processes that are going on within human bodies. So that to study the, the stars is to study, in some, sense, in some sense, a reflection of a body. And to study a body is to study a reflection of the stars. Okay. Now, does that map to the human soul? It could. <laughs> it could, but it doesn't sound like that's what, uh, you know, as above, so below directly applies to. Well, it, it, it is sufficiently vague as to be applied to have been applied in, in a wide variety of contexts. Okay. Um, in, in the alchemy context specifically, there's also some, in, some sense that the external work of the alchemist, that is the, in some sense, the above, reflects the internal spiritual quality of the alchemist. And uh, so you have the same sort of sympathetic connection then between the internal world of the, the spiritual life of the alchemist and their spiritual balance uh, and their ability to transform substances or to do all the other sort of alchemical work. Mm-hmm. And there, it, the above and below then is our world is connected to or our ability to work in the world and to execute alchemical processes and the purity of the resulting uh, substances reflects the internal spiritual world. Uh, I think this is also a metaphor that might be useful for understanding the invisible sun. If the invisible sun is, uh, a, is the, the internal engine of the, uh, of the actuality as a whole, um, then you have this connection between the, 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 this power source uh, reflecting through all of the other Uh, attendant worlds and the suns uh, that shine on them uh okay that does i think make a bit more sense in this sort of context and one thing i'm thinking of is we know that there's a sooth deck that's going to be tied into uh, how the game functions and it may indicate you know strengths and weaknesses of the various suns uh, as the sooth cards get flipped over so it, I guess that might sort of tie into, uh, hey, you're you're a Vizlay, you're pulling your power from the Invisible Sun, you're pulling your power from your heart. Like that's, you know, the metaphor here. Like it's coming from within. It's powered from this uh, external thing that we've been talking about too. Um, but that Sooth deck might be throwing a wrench in the works for you. It might be. You know, helping you out in some ways, uh, depending on what sort of cards are getting flipped over and what sort of impact that has uh, on the suns that are in play. So the the power source may be the invisible sun, but it, it projects that force through the other suns. 
and as the sooth deck changes, one's connection to the various suns may change, making access to power easier or more difficult. Yeah, okay. I think this makes a little more sense then. Uh, th that was one thing I've always been trying to wrap my head around. Like, what does it mean that this is a map of the soul? But uh, if you think of Solaire as uh, a Vizley's heart, uh, both in a not not so much in a physical sense, but as in their their resolve uh, and that sort of thing, then it makes a lot more sense that this is a a map of the soul. And it may be a concept that is meant to be understood, but not to be rationalized. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is occult stuff. Uh, it doesn't need to be rational. It just needs to feel good. <laughs> um, so we have a warden of the Invisible Sun, and she's an important one. Uh, her name is Vizla. And uh, I think you can hear uh, why that's important. But uh, the term Vizlay is basically derived from her name. And just remember, uh, you are children of Vizla, which is why you are called Vizlay. So she's probably going to be fairly important. Uh, and it sounds like she's still around and is, you know, doing things up in the Invisible Sun. Uh, there have been some wardens that have gone missing, but Vizla's around and she's keeping things running. Um, but without an attendant world, uh, I'm guessing that visiting her is something that could be accomplished because, Hey, it's a, the path of suns is a map of your soul. So do some soul searching. I bet you can get there. Yeah. It, it might be a different experience to interact with Vizla than to interact with the other wardens. But I suspect if it, if she is a named aspect of the setting, that there'll be some way to interact with her. Oh, yeah, I would think so. Uh, I think that's pretty good for the Invisible Sun. Uh, unless you had anything else you wanted to talk about, I'd say we can just wrap it up. Uh, well, I mean, we could talk about some of the references to the Invisible Sun that may have motivated some of the setting design uh, and the phrase, the Invisible Sun itself. Uh, I was familiar with the, the police song uh, from before. Uh, um, but that was really the only reference I had to begin with. Uh, we can provide a link in the show notes to the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the song by the police. Um, and it has this sense that there is an energy source that reflects through everyone. That's the metaphor for the invisible sun. Um, uh, so, and, and so that, that might be a useful metaphor also for understanding the invisible sun in the game itself. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty relevant metaphor. Uh, I, I gave it a listen and, uh, I I thought it was interesting that the song was also about uh, the violence in Northern Ireland, which kind of ties into the whole you know setting of Indigo in Saturn, uh, where you have this you know war torn city that is in the process of recovering from you know these traumatic events. Uh, the other thing I ran into there's a quote on the page uh, from Thomas Brown: uh, "Life is a pure flame, and we live by an invisible sun within us." So if, if you're looking at that as the invisible sun is this uh, source of energy that, uh, you know, everybody has and it ties people together, um, I didn't really find too much further about Thomas Brown in the amount of time that I uh, spent looking him up. Uh, 
he it sounds like he was pretty prolific. Uh, he did a lot of writing on science, medicine, and and religion. Uh, he was a, a devout Christian who was very concerned about uh, not so much his accomplishments in this world, but more about his uh, place in the next world. I'm not sure exactly how that would apply to the role-playing game, and that would be a question I would pose to you know whoever you know Monty who's designing this. I'm not familiar with Thomas Brown, but it sounds like someone that might be worth uh, investigating uh, to see what else uh, might be connected to these concepts of the invisible sun just as a a fishing expedition. Definitely interesting. So yeah, go read some philosophy, people. With Embrace the Black Cube, we discuss the occasional design diary blog posts about the design of the invisible sun RPG. In this segment, we discuss the sixth design diary on the role of secrets in the game. The description of the Invisible Sun RPG has, from the beginning, included uh, references to secrets and the importance of secrets. This is embedded also in the close tie of the setting to the nature of the of the occult. Uh, the very word occult means to be kind of shrouded um, and thus secretive. And while the game isn't based on a particular model of the occult or referencing a singular perspective of real-world occult philosophies, I think it has uh, clearly been motivated in part to represent the essence of occult, that is, of hidden knowledge. Um, And the uh, sixth design diary on the role of secrets talks a little bit about how uh, Monty Cook was thinking about secrets and how it motivated his design in the game uh, in some ways that surprised me, to be honest. Uh, uh, he, it, the, the fact the surprise kind of opens the design diary where he starts with a, 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 a reference where he talks about how uh, collecting was always very important to him and the notion of, like, say, in a comic book run or as a s- series of, of collectible cards that he uh, always wanted to, to complete a set. And there was some excitement in hunting down the missing pieces of the set. So if you had all 12 issues of this maxi series, um, but you're, except for issue seven, there was a thrill in hunting for and eventually finding issue number seven or along those lines. Uh, while as a longtime uh, and now recovering comic book collector, uh, I get that. Uh, I, I had that thrill of the hunt as well uh, and enjoy that collection uh, mentality. Uh, it's, it didn't strike me as much really about secrets. So it's interesting to, to, list, to try and connect this sort of uh, pleasure derived from collecting uh, with the notion of secrets in the game and the occult and mysteries uh, and things like that that I no, more normally associate with the notion of secrets. Um, what, what, were, what was your reaction to this starting out the design diary talking about kind of co- the motive to collect things? I remember going with my friends to CD shops, uh, music shops down in Milwaukee. Uh, I think it was Atomic Records we used to hit down there. And I just remember, you know, digging through all of their, it was CDs at the time, not cassettes. Uh, I remember cassettes, but that was uh, way before I got any music. Uh, But I remember digging through all their bins of CDs, just looking for, you know, the, the B-sides and bootlegs and just trying to, you know, put together all of those, you know, 
albums that we wanted to listen to and all of the interesting things that you know you could find out there if you went hunting for it like finding finding b-sides uh were like that stuff was great way back then uh and there's something in here in the article where hey everything now is pretty easy to find on the internet and that's mostly true uh and tracking that stuff down like you, you know you just back in college like you just hit napster and you found it or you know these days it's probably just on youtube or something like everything is is easy to find uh so that exercise of actually going out and going on an expedition to collect this knowledge and information it doesn't it doesn't happen so easily anymore and i think that's sort of a nostalgia that uh monty is trying to recreate with this game and and i think part of my surprise at that initial discussion was that um this has two parts to it, and I was emphasizing more of what will be the second part. So the first part is acquiring knowledge, investigation, mm -hmm. uh, and kind of an acquisitive motivation to acquire more information. And I don't normally – that wasn't what I was expecting to read about when I read about secrets. What I expected to read about more was secrets are knowledge that's concealed in some way, that's, that's hidden, not simply unavailable at the time not simply waiting for you to go discover it, but that there's something that's preventing you from discovering it. Uh, and I expected that to be more of the emphasis. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's no reason why it, it couldn't be in the game itself um, or in how we, we play the game. So I guess it, it was actually kind of interesting for, to me to, to read the design diary and think about how secrets can really work from both of these perspectives. It's uh, the acquisitive compulsion to go get more knowledge, but also what is it that stands between you and getting that knowledge? Uh, with in our current kind of information environment, uh, there's there are fewer barriers uh, to getting that information, and it might change the way our, our relationship with that information. Kind of one, of, one of the second parts of the article is talking about how. Uh, Monty Cook and his his friends kind of would have these kind of have personal pride in knowing things that other people didn't know. And it wasn't, in this case, it wasn't even because other people couldn't know it. It's just they didn't bother uh, to mm -hmm. invest the time uh, to learn these things. So uh, one of the examples was the person who knew all of the, uh, like the first generation of elves in the Cimmerillion. That is a crazy number of names, I imagine. Um, I, I don't even know. Uh, and I don't, so I don't even know how ignorant I am. Uh, of that, uh, but so it, and it wasn't that the Cimmerillion was really that hard to get a hold of. It was that not many people would invest the time to know that in that detail the information in the Cimmerillion, and and that sort of love of knowing for the sake of knowing is a really interesting motivation. Uh, and I can definitely I can definitely see that in a lot of of our kind of gaming culture, and so translating that into the setting itself could be a lot of fun. I mean, while I don't know the names of, uh, you know, all the elves in Cimmerillion are, are, are really have that much of a, of a background in Tolkien sort of trivia. Uh, you know, I take pride in some comic book trivia and some early D and D sorts of trivia, um, which is no, you know, better <laughs> or worse, um, than these other forms of trivia, but there is a sense of pride and membership, 
uh, in having that information and having invested the time to turn that information to, to to possess that information to memorize it. Um, even if there really wasn't anything else stopping someone from reading the comic books or from reading these old games or things like that, uh, it is still a way we indicate membership to each other that, oh, well, this person is part of my tribe because she knows these things um, about these old modules or she knows these references to these these comic book storylines or things like that. Uh, so we, we use these as an indication of membership um, and, uh, and that's some of what uh, Monty Cook is talking about, secrets playing a role in the Invisible Sun setting, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, so when my brothers and I get together and all we do is quote Simpsons, like we're identifying our tribe. Absolutely. It's something and everybody can know, but uh, hey. Also, we only quote Simpsons up, uh, seasons 1 through 11. Um, as is right and proper. Yeah. I, I just uh, in my office today put up my uh, my uh, stonecutter number one toy, uh, <laughs> mint in box, uh, Good. up in my office, um, and so that you know having that up there is an indication of membership. So people come into my office and they see my uh, my you know Patrick Stewart stonecutter toy, uh, and they see uh, my uh, tomb of horrors up on the up on my wall, and it's an indication of membership. And it's not that anyone else couldn't have gotten those things. Um, and so that's that's why it, it wasn't what I was expecting with secrets, because I think of secrets as things that are hidden or, 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 sep- or, or, or something that, we, that most people can't get a hold of. But it could also just be it is something that's not commonly held uh, and th- thus is an indication of membership. And that's more of what he's talking about in the first part of the design diary. But he does move on to talk about secrets that are of, of the second type. That is where the emphasis is where on information that cannot be acquired by everybody very easily. Yeah, the, the next part of the design diary talks about some of the mechanics for uh, secrets within the game. Uh, one of those uh, mechanics has already been discussed in another design diary, that hidden knowledge is itself a base statistic for characters. And thus the knowledge people have, and we might think of this as being secret knowledge, uh, may be useful as a resource for characters. But we've already talked about that um, in a previous uh, segment. What I, I thought might be new in this segment was the notion that secrets might also be special capabilities that your character has. It sounded like these might be a little less or a little more specific than spells and maybe more like a feat in, uh, say, third edition forward uh, Dungeons and Dragons. A little something your character can do that no one else can because your character possesses a specific secret. That that sounds a little bit like what they showed off in their uh, their play example. They had a video up. Uh, where they wrapped for a session, and then in between sessions, uh, Monty and one of the players got together and filled in a little bit of the backstory uh, for her character. And then when they met up for the next session, uh, she said, hey, I can get through this barrier because I actually know how to get... I know the secret to getting through it. Right. And uh, though I got the sense that these special capabilities may be repeated use, Uh and so it, it might be, uh, we don't really know exactly whether that's more an example of hidden knowledge or of a special capability, but it's an example of how secrets uh, translate into gameplay uh, and are an important part of gameplay in Invisible Sun. Oh, so 
secrets like the uh, secret language of the spiders or a secret <laughs> for making your spells last longer or stealing ideas out of people's heads. Exactly. Okay. Uh, something that's probably a little more specific than a spell, but a, re- a, a useful, repeatable sort of, of uh, ability okay. is the yeah, sense I got at least. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. Um, uh, there there were some more things in the secrets that I thought were really cool. Uh, do I'm I'm just looking at our notes. Uh, cool. You you don't have this in the notes, so I just wanted to to touch on it. Go for uh, it. There were two things actually. Um, the first one is the the secrets in the box uh, and on the books and the testament of sons. So there were a whole bunch of. Uh, secrets and puzzles that were put together for the Kickstarter. And one thing they mentioned is that the Testament of Sons is going to have secrets on it. And in the higher res images that we got of that, the the Testament had the the symbols, the glyphs that showed up. Uh, well, they show up on the Path of Sons. They also show up in the image of the Solaire icon. Uh, and it looked like it was some sort of language. Uh that was partially deciphered people were able to get some interesting words out of it but nobody really seemed to have a solid solution to what that alphabet or you know what the what the symbols would translate into uh so there are there is all that stuff in the box and in the books uh which i'm very curious about uh the other thing that i thought was a really interesting idea because uh having secrets in a game as a GM can be interesting, but I've always tried to figure out how to make it fun for the characters because if, well, for the players, if the players don't know about a secret, it's kind of hard for them to be interested in trying to go after it. Uh, so yeah, you can have secrets that are getting uh, handed out to them over the course of a campaign. Uh, and I thought one of the ideas that Monty had here in the design diary was really interesting. So the spells that are given to the players come on cards. And one of his suggestions was, hey, you could just, you know, take some of those cards out because there's going to be a ton of them. So you could just take a few of the cards out that look interesting and just, you know, hand them out to your players at certain times when it makes sense, when they discover this, you know, magic that's been long forgotten. So you... It's not in a book for you to remove. It's just a card and you could just take it out and it feels like it's way more secret than if you just said to your players, hey, uh, this spell that you see in the book, just ignore it for now. I want to do something interesting with it. Here you can actually just take it out of a, out of the deck and you know drop it on your players at a later time. And I thought that was an interesting idea, though it's important, I think, to distinguish between um, the, the situation of a, of a GM pulling those cards out beforehand and then to hold them back to give them out later than pulling them from players who know they're in there because there is a different reaction to people when they gain something they didn't know they were supposed to have than mm-hmm. when they lose something they thought they were supposed to have. And so pulling them in view of the players uh, might lead to more conflict or, or dissatisfaction than if yeah. you just suddenly took it out a, a, ahead of time. And I think that's what he was suggesting is take it out ahead of time. And so they never know it's missing until right. they, they uh, encounter it later. Yeah. And that's, I think that's a very important distinction. If, and, and you have to have a, a group that would be okay with that sort of thing too. Uh, 
I mean, I suppose it would be possible that some of your players uh, would react uh, in a sort of annoyed way if you say, hey, I pulled out some of these cards and now here you go. They're they're all yours. But, you know, if you've got a group that's okay with the, I guess it's kind of a, a metagame play where you pull out uh, information from the game itself without telling them, like that sounds like a really fun way to, you know, give them this big secret that they can actually use in a in a fun mechanical sense. Yeah, I think the major lesson is to consider the fun for the players, even if there's conflict for the characters. Uh, but so you don't you want to make sure that the way you're using secrets doesn't create conflict for the players. Mm -hmm. uh, and that might be if there's secrets between players, this is notoriously conflict ridden um, and potentially problematic. Uh, as you're it just breeds suspicion and animosity between players between characters. If you have players who want to engage that sort of game, it can be, it can work out just fine. Uh, similarly with, you know, taking the, the spell cards out early, if that leads to a player experience of discovering those cards, that is fun. And the sort of, the sort of fun that the players all want to have, that's great. Um, if the experience for the players uh, even if in the game world it wouldn't really be all that different, but the experience for the players is they just lost something mm -hmm. that might, uh, you know, give them a negative uh, perspective on uh, on that particular game, or might you know that might make them resent the loss of those abilities. Even if from the character perspective they never had those powers to begin with, so you, you, with secrets in particular, you need to distinguish between a player's reaction to the secret and the character's reaction to the secret. Yeah. Yeah, this is interesting because we really just had a discussion very similar to this uh, between my friends uh, about, hey, is this is this puzzle fair, even though it has this uh, twist to it that takes advantage of, you know, some players expectations. Uh, and there was a big, long discussion about, you know, how all that shook out. But this is very similar to that, that, hey, if you're if you've got the group, uh, if you've got a group that is you know, going to be okay with, you know, taking, taking some of these spells out and reintroducing them at a later time without their, uh, without their knowledge about it. Hey, that, that sounds like a fun way to do it. Uh, you do have another note here about, uh, the dangers of secrets and that is planning too far ahead and never using those secrets. And, uh, yeah, I, I totally see those dangers. Um, and that's something that I try, I have been trying to avoid in the games that I've been running more recently. This was something that came up, uh, I don't know, it came up like a year or so ago. Uh, it was something that I just started thinking about. And I said, you know, I have a whole bunch of these, I guess they're secrets behind the scenes. I have my NPCs doing stuff and they have their machinations. And eventually the players are going to find out about them and that's cool. However, if they don't find out about them, then that just kind of sucks. And the only person who's enjoying these secrets is me and the players don't get any sort of enjoyment out of it. So yeah. And, 
And it might even be frustrating for you because your enjoyment is based upon the revelation of those secrets to the players later. And mm-hmm. they kind of like, look at how cool the story is. All the stuff's been going on uh, that you've been interacting with, but you haven't quite seen it. But now you have uncovered these secrets and isn't that fun? You never get to that stage. And so the players don't know what they're missing, which I guess is the good part. But you you know what you're missing because you've saved those secrets for later. Uh, and that's just part of a, a general problem uh, with a lot of RPGs where uh, if people spend too much time in setting design and in, in campaign design, mm-hmm. uh, they spend all this time planning out what their arc over the next four years of sessions is going to be. And then six weeks in, um, one of the players moves out of town <laughs> and the whole party breaks up. Uh, it can just be it can be a frustrating experience. And mm-hmm. secrets are uh, one of the ways that this manifests that if you spend a lot of time designing secrets that you intend to be uncovered much later in the campaign, you may not get to that. So there is something to be said for planning secrets uh, that you can introduce quickly. Uh, to your players and and not holding them back for a long period of time and then just never getting to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like me some secrets, but uh, if if those secrets don't get shared, then they're not going to be fun for everybody. They're going to be fun for you to a degree, but not fun for the whole group. Right. I, I find myself making this, having this problem all the time where I'm like planning these big campaign arcs with these secret motivations and, oh, well, this person's really doing this. Uh, and then realizing uh, I'm never, we're never going to get to the point where these secrets are all uncovered. So maybe I need to plan more in terms of arcs and secrets are relevant for a session to three, um, but not plan out the great revelation that they'll invest three years of campaign time in until suddenly all the pieces fall into place. And as wonderful as that experience sounds, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, probably not for everybody. (laughs) The... Design Diary gives us a few new perspectives on secrets. Uh, It has a little more information on how secrets will be used mechanically within the game and provides some inspiration for how secrets can be brought into the design of the game uh, and how it is played from a GM's perspective. Uh, But clearly, there's a lot more to be learned. Um, And some of those may be even secrets from the players uh, themselves, not in the story, but in the game uh, and, I'm, and as you pointed out, it's going to be interesting to see what secrets are built into the box itself. Um, they, they've made uh, a, a many references to the, se- the box itself mm-hmm. having its own secrets. And so I imagine there's a secret compartment uh, and all other sorts of things. Um, so this game is literally steeping in secrets. Also, one, one quick note. Hey, Troy, uh, can you believe that our box of Invisible Sun only came with 50 spell cards? This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find me at DR Scott Robinson on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore red on Twitter. 
So leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hear it helps people find the show. Uh, or tell a friend about the show, and that would be another great way to help us out. Thanks. Thanks.